0: Matthew 12, verse 38. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a miraculous sign from you. He answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now one greater than Jonah is here. The Queen of the South will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom and now one greater than Solomon is here. When an evil spirit comes out of a man, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that man is worse than the first. That is how it will be with this wicked generation. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. He replied to them, who is my mother? And who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So Colossians chapter 3 verses 1 to 4. Paul writes, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died... And your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with Him in glory.
1: Uh, well, let me echo Nigel's welcome. And if you have a Bible, please turn in Matthew uh, to Matthew 12. And while you're doing that, I wonder what you think are some of the biggest obstacles people face to grappling with the Christian faith. I'm talking about people who aren't yet Christians. What do you think are some of the biggest obstacles? Uh, to them thinking about things of uh, Christianity and about Jesus. Is it perhaps they don't think Christianity and history can work together? Or Christianity and science? Or perhaps the Bible just seems outdated and wrong? Well, in our passage this morning in Matthew, um, we're building on an issue that Nigel started preaching about last week and has in fact been preaching about for these last few months through Matthew, which is a problem of the heart. And I think the biggest issue that we're going to be looking at today that many people face to thinking about Christian things is the fact that so many of us, us that come to church, so many of us that call themselves Christians, we're actually pretty lukewarm towards God. I mean, if you're not a Christian and your Christian friends don't seem convinced about Jesus, then why would you explore the Christian faith? If your Christian friends are not genuine in their pursuit of God why would you want to explore further as to whether he's really worth following? So as I was thinking about what is this biggest obstacle, actually the talk that Caroline did this morning, I think what I realised was one of the biggest obstacles to people exploring the Christian faith is me. Yeah, so uh, I had this quote, I've opened mine, I've cheated. Mine says, there's none like him, I would not exchange one smile of his lovely face with kingdoms. And the problem is I don't know that I can always say that. Well, to put it... Uh, a, more contemporary way in football terms. Uh, This is true for me, it might be true for you. Why is it if Jesus is that important to me that I'm much more keen and happy to talk to people at work about the arrival of the special one at Spurs than than I am about the arrival of the special one in my life? So in today's passage we have these three fairly peculiar little episodes and Jesus I think is shining a spotlight on superficiality on the kind of surfaceness of so many of our faith, on the fact that we're not wholehearted in our pursuit of Jesus. And in Matthew 12, we join in verse 38, there've been a kind of bubbling up of a contrast between Jesus and the Pharisees, and Jesus has been exposing the unbelief of the Pharisees, who are supposed to be these moral and uh, religious leaders of the day. So if you look back at the beginning of chapter 12, the Pharisees and Jesus are debating about the Sabbath. And the Pharisees try and set themselves up as the great lovers of God and of his law. And yet it's Jesus who is very clearly the one that is most compassionate, the one who truly loves God, the one who's most truly concerned about God's law, not the Pharisees. And then in the passage that Nigel preached on last week in verses 22 to 33, Jesus uh, heals a demon-possessed man and all the Pharisees want to do is bring Jesus down. He's going about preaching the kingdom of uh, the gospel of the kingdom. He's healing the sick, binding up the brokenhearted, sparing the demon-possessed. And the Pharisees want to kill Jesus. And now we join our passage in verse thirty-eight, and Jesus is effectively doubling down on the issue that Nigel spoke to us about last week, which is that we have a problem of the heart. And he does that pretty much head on. So we're going to look at these three little stories. I've got three points like every sermon. uh, But I'm going to warn you now that my sermon is 95% point one and two. So don't panic when we get to the end of point two and still think point three is to come. So point one uh, is the problem of a hardened heart. In verse 38, the Pharisees ask Jesus a question. They say, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. And that seems a pretty reasonable request, but it's the sort of question which, if you're anything like me, you use quite a lot because it's got an ulterior motive. It's quite disingenuous. So, uh, kids, have you tidied your room? I know the answer to the question already. It's not really a question. It's uh, I want something from you, or I know that you haven't, so I'm using this as a way to give you a bit of a kick. Or at work, uh, how's that report coming on? It doesn't really mean, uh, how's that report coming on? What it means is, I know it's going to be late, so get on with it. So there's all these disingenuous questions, and here the Pharisees are asking one. And they use a respectful title, they call Jesus Teacher, but it's a disrespectful question because they're not actually really asking for a sign. And we know that because Jesus has already done loads of miraculous signs in their presence, and yet they're not believing in him. And the question they're asking isn't really one of doubt. It's not driven by a lack of uh, miraculous signs. It's not a lack of proof. Their question isn't an eye question, an eye problem. They're not saying we haven't seen enough. Their question is a heart problem. They're saying we don't believe. And it doesn't matter how much you show us, Jesus, we don't want to be convinced. And Jesus knows that. And we know that because in verses 14 and 15 of Matthew 12, if you can look back at those, we can see what the Pharisees really feel feel about Jesus. Verse 14 tells us that they want to kill him. And verse 15 tells us that Jesus knows this. Aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that place. We want to see a sign from you is not a genuine question. Jesus knows that they want to kill him. It's a bit like uh, somebody you know who's got an axe to grind with you for some reason or another, who, doesn't, who you know for some reason doesn't really like you, but yet every time you're <laughs> with other people, they ask you, how are you? How's it going? And you know that's not a real question, but on the surface they want to look respectful. But underneath there's something else going on. And so Jesus responds to their question in verse 39 with a way which probably isn't going to endear himself to them any further. He calls them evil and adulterous. Uh, or wicked and adulterous. Uh, They're two things that would have really annoyed the Pharisees, because they considered themselves moral role models and real sticklers for the law of God. So here's Jesus saying to them, no, you're morally corrupt and you're unfaithful to God. And he's throwing back to the Old Testament, where the prophets would have looked at the covenant people of God, who were seeing them rebelling against this covenant God and calling them adulterers. Or two-faced. It's a real insult. He's saying on the outside, you're doing all the right things, you're looking morally acceptable, but on the inside, there's something rotten at work. You're, you don't love God. Now I think it's worth mentioning that Jesus isn't, I don't think, rebuking them because they've asked for a sign. So if you're if you're have lots of doubts and have lots of questions about who God is I don't think that's what's going on here he's rebuking their stubborn hardened heart he knows that it's not a genuine doubt question their problem is a heart so hardened that however spectacular the sign they're not going to believe it somebody was telling me this week of a friend of theirs who when they asked them so if I was able to prove to you 100% that Jesus is who he says he is would you believe in him then And the friend said, no, no, I wouldn't. And that's what we've got going on here with the Pharisees. So what actually was the Pharisees' problem with Jesus? Why were their hearts so hardened against him? Well, I think the answer to that exposes something about the Pharisees, but also whether we're Christians or not exposes something about us as well. See, at the Pharisees, the centre of their hatred, I think, for Jesus was the fact that he was not the sort of saviour they were wanting. The Pharisees knew, because they knew their Old Testament, that God was going to send a rescuer, a king, this Messiah. But the sort of Messiah they were hoping for was one that was going to come and free them from Roman tyranny, was going to re-establish the kingdom of David in Jerusalem, was going to be this kind of warrior, rebellious type. Whereas Jesus was claiming to be the Messiah, but was talking about loving your neighbours, praying for those who persecute you, seeking the well-being of others above yourself. Which wasn't the sort of saviour that the Pharisees wanted. They wanted a rescuer who's going to dance to their tune. Nigel, when he talked about this a few weeks ago, talked about the fact that it's an issue of power, that we don't want to submit to anybody. We want to retain power over our own lives. And what we really want is a Messiah who's going to come and endorse our point of view, back up our decisions, and dance to our tune, who's going to meet our needs. It's not that we want to submit. We don't. What we want is a Messiah who's going to submit to our will. And you might recognise this way of thinking. Um, perhaps, um, like me, sometimes there's something you really want in your life and you think to yourself, surely if Jesus is my Messiah, then my number one priority is going to be his number one priority. Uh, so, for example, you might say to yourself, um, I want a job that I'm really good at. I want my kids to be so good that I never get called into school. Uh, I want my relationships to be better. And the problem is that when Jesus doesn't act in the way that I want him to, a kind of resistance to him builds up in my heart and I begin to not want him to be king of my life. I begin to lack trust in him and find myself bargaining with him. And if you've been a Christian for a while, you might be pretty good at this. Uh, We do it subconsciously more than consciously. Very rarely do we say, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Uh, But I think it's how we operate in practice. Uh, The more we convince ourselves that Jesus isn't doing my will, the more we think we know best what sort of saviour we need, the more closed our hearts become to him and the work of his Holy Spirit. And this passage is saying this kind of underground resistance to Jesus, the right we reserve to be not totally committed to him, until he comes through for us, it's a very dangerous place to be spiritually. So Jesus tells the Pharisees off, he calls them evil and adulterous, and then in a kind of typical Jesus way, he says, you don't really want a sign, but I'm gonna give you a sign, but it's just not the sort of sign that you were expecting. And he compares himself with the prophet Jonah. Now, I don't know how much you know about Jonah, uh, but he's probably one of the most bitter, stubborn people in the Bible. So the fact he's talking about the sign of the prophet Jonah, uh, what's going on? Well, in a nutshell, the story of Jonah, I'm not gonna, we haven't got time to go through it all, but in a nutshell, uh, God calls Jonah to go to Nineveh to call them to repent and to preach to them to turn away from their sins. But he hates the Ninevites. He doesn't want them to be saved. He's scared. So he gets on a boat to go in the opposite direction. When he's on the boat, a big storm comes up and the sailors wonder what's going on. And Jonah knows what the problem is. So he says to the sailors, I'm running away from God. The only thing we can do here is you're going to have to throw me overboard. So the sailors, after a bit of and throwing, throw him overboard. And the storm dies down. And then famously, Jonah gets swallowed up by a big fish and spends three days in the belly of the fish, giving him plenty of time to talk to God, to repent. And then the fish throws him back up into shore and Nineveh, um, Jonah goes off to Nineveh and preaches a um, very, very short sermon and the Ninevites re- repent and then Jonah's really annoyed with God uh, because he is annoyed about God's love, he's annoyed about the fact they can be forgiven. Uh, now Jonah was this kind of expert at resisting God's attempt to humble him and to be obedient just like we are, just like the Pharisees were. Uh, And Jesus goes back to that account and says, it'll be the sign of Jonah that will be given to this generation as proof of who I am. Now, he's not comparing himself to Jonah. What he's doing is pointing to the fish. God keeps Jonah, preserves him from death, and then Jonah goes to deliver a message that the Ninevites are going to respond to. And Jesus knows that he's going to be swallowed up by death. He knows that the Pharisees are plotting to kill him. And he knows that he's going to be delivered through and from death. And that his resurrection is going to show the truth of his message. That's the great proof. That's the great sign that Jesus is the Messiah. In Romans chapter 1, Paul says, Jesus Christ was declared to be the Son of God with power. How? By the resurrection from the dead. The Pharisees demand proof from Jesus. Teacher, show us a sign. And Jesus says, the proof is you're going to kill me. And I'm going to let you because I couldn't be more different than Jonah. He was absent, he was bitter, he was envious. I'm going to be rep- I'm present, I'm good and I'm merciful. That's what a true Messiah looks like. A, a Jesus-shaped Messiah is a suffering servant king. Jesus loves his people so much he's going to die for them. He's going to take their sins and all its punishment and consequences upon them upon him. And he's going to take it to the grave because he loves them, even when they're evil and adulterous. His submission to death is what demands our total submission. So when we ask for a sign, when the Pharisees ask for a sign, the sign is the cross, the resurrection of Jesus. And if you're sitting here today thinking, if only God would give me a sign that he's real. This passage is reminding us that the sign of Jonah, the death and resurrection of Jesus, is like the kind of neon flashing sign. And if you're not a Christian today, I'd encourage you to explore that sign further, perhaps by reading a Bible with a a non-Christian friend. That's where we can encounter the true Jesus at the cross. And Christian friend, if you're struggling, and struggling particularly with trusting in Jesus being all that you need, again, we need to look afresh to the cross. That's the only sign to remind us that Jesus is all and everything that we need Now, in verses 41 to 42, Jesus is saying, look, these Ninevites believed in God with a far lesser sign than we've had. And the Pharisees are going to reject God, even though they're going to see the resurrection with their own eyes. Don't you understand that there's a greater prophet than Jonah here, Jesus is saying. And those Ninevites are going to stand up in the last day and condemn the Pharisees. And so is the Queen of the South, this queen who travelled all the way from Africa to hear Solomon's teaching and yet the Pharisees wouldn't even respond to the teaching of Jesus, the Messiah. There's a prophet far greater than Jonah, there's a Messiah king far greater than Solomon and yet the Pharisees plotting to kill him because they're so wrapped up in their version of what a Messiah should look like. Jesus is exposing the fact that their hearts are proud and hardened. And then, verse 43, Jesus launches straight into another story, uh, which is our second point, which is the problem of a haunted heart. Now, verses 43 to 45, we have this kind of strange little story of a, a haunted house. And I don't know whether you remember back at school, the principle of nature abhors or hates a vacuum. Do you remember that? I think it's got some Latin name. Anybody know the Latin name? No, I can't. I did have it written down, but then I decided it was too highfalutin, so I wouldn't use it. Uh, But here we have this kind of spiritual application of that same physics principle. You see, Jesus is telling us that we, like the Pharisees, if we refuse to submit to him wholeheartedly and let him be our saviour, then we're in danger of creating a spiritual vacuum in our hearts. So look again at these verses. When an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places seeking rest and doesn't find it. Then it says, I'm going to go back. I will turn to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean and put in order. It's empty. So then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. That is how how it will be with this wicked generation. Jesus is warning about a very dangerous spiritual condition. The Pharisees, the people listening to him, many of them would have uh, sat under the teaching of John the Baptist, may have even been baptised. Uh, they'd been listening to, to John's teaching, and yet all they were changing was on the outside. They hadn't changed on the inside. They were um, half-hearted in their commitment, and that means there's plenty of room in their hearts for other things. Now, if we're followers of Jesus, then we need to fill our hearts with him. Because if we don't actively fill our hearts with him, then they'll get filled for us. I think Andrew's talked about something like that as one of the points. I think we need to actively fight against sin. It's a similar principle. Uh, The things that fill our hearts, if we just allow our hearts to be filled, are dangerous. They're poisonous and they're bad for us. Uh, The Bible tells us that as humans, we're born as rebellious people. We're born as sin addicts, and so that we're long-term sin addicts. And the way to deal with an addiction isn't just by building up our willpower or trying harder. It's not just about saying no to something. It's about saying yes to something in its place. Christians have to fill their house or their hearts with the Holy Spirit to point us to Jesus. Uh, this is Pastor Tim Keller. He says, we don't get to s- decide to worship. Everybody worships something. What we get to decide is who to give our hearts to, to gaze upon lovingly. Everyone worships something. Our hearts will always fill up. The only choice we get is what we worship and what we fill our hearts with. Friends, claiming to follow Jesus but trying to hold him at arm's length is a disaster waiting to happen. Treating Jesus like just a good man or a good teacher is only going to have a superficial external effect on us will be swept clean on the outside like this house, but will be empty on the inside. And what happens is our idol factory hearts will begin to produce idols, things that replace Jesus in our hearts and our lives, and we'll begin to treat Jesus like the genie from Aladdin, hoping that he'll turn up and do our will when we want him to, but otherwise kind of feeling pretty resentful of him when he doesn't do what we want. So I want to get practical here um, and ask the question which is a um, a rhetorical question, really. Are there any idols creeping into your heart? And I know the answer is yes, because I know what my own heart is like. And we all have idols in our hearts. We all do. Success, money, love, family, work, doing stuff at church. Uh, There's a preacher, 17th century preacher. I had to Google that he was 17th century because he hasn't got a 17th century name. His name's David Clarkson. He said that our souls are a house, like in Matthew 12, and that idols are set up in every room. So what do we do? Well, there's this great book. If you've not read it, I really would recommend it. It's called Counterfeit Gods by Tim Keller. Uh, And there's a couple of chapters at the end where he starts, first of all, by pointing us back to this principle in Matthew 12. He says that we can't simply empty our hearts of idols. They have to be replaced. The vacuum needs to be filled. He says, with a living encounter with Jesus. And then he goes on to give some questions to help, first of all, to identify what our idols, what the things are that are more important than Jesus are. And if you're in life groups, we're going to be looking at these in more detail in the week. But here are just some. What do you enjoy daydreaming about? When you're sitting here listening to a sermon, where's where's your mind going? What fills your mind when there's nothing else demanding to think about? Do you habitually think about your career plans, your money, your relationships? And how do you spend your money? Jesus says, where your treasure is, there is your heart. So our patterns of spending may reveal our idols. Or how do you feel when a prayer isn't answered in the way you hoped it would be? Do you respond Jonah-like with anger and despair? And if so, then maybe that thing that you've been praying for is more important to you than Jesus himself? Or about your emotions? What are your most uncontrollable emotions? If you get very angry about something, is it because the thing uh, that you're angry about is something you must have at all costs? Or if you're scared about something, is it because the thing you're worried about is a necessity to you? I'm going to say it again, we all have idols in our hearts because our hearts make them. And we know that we have to kick them out and replace them, otherwise the space is going to be filled by them. Matthew 12 tells us that. When that spirit comes back, it comes back not just on its own, it comes back with seven other spirits, more wicked than itself. But how do we do that? Well, Colossians 3 that Nigel read to us is a really good place to start. The first couple of verses of Colossians 3 say this. Since then you've been raised with Christ, set your heart... On things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. The simple truth is that the way we get rid of idols and keep them out is we have to set our whole heart on God. We have to set our minds and our hearts on things above, not on earthly things. In other words, Jesus has to become more beautiful to our heart than our idols are. If we kick out the idols but don't put... The love for Jesus in its place, then those idols are going to come back with its buddies and fill our heart and squat in there again. And we, we do this by turning again and again to the cross through prayer, through reading the Bible, through singing, through coming to church. Because that sign of Jonah, the cross, is where we can see most clearly God's sacrifice for us, where we can most clearly see his unconditional love for us. And when we grasp those things, that's what's going to keep the idols out. It's the only way we can just say, get out and stay out to our idols. Sometimes I think that if I just try a little bit harder, sometimes with children we get star charts, don't we? And that's what's going to do it. And we do the same for us as adults. An In intellectual battle, star charts and willpower are going to do the job, but they won't. That's only superficial. And that's what Matthew 12 is warning us about. And only grasping the beauty of the cross and the resurrection is going to overcome. Augustine was a fourth century theologian. He's definitely got an old person's name, is not he? He said, My soul is like a house, small for you to enter, but I pray you to enlarge it. It's in ruins, but I ask you to remake it. It contains much you will not be pleased to see. That's those idols. This I do know and do not hide. But who is to rid it of these things? And Augustine's answer was, there is no one but you. I wonder what the condition of your heart is. Do you echo Augustine's prayer that your heart is in ruins and you know that the only one who can remake it and kick out the things that are causing it to decay is Jesus? Or are you in danger of paying lip service to Jesus and actually trying to create him in an image of your own liking, creating idols that you turn to to meet your needs instead of him? And are you seeking a sign in your life that Jesus loves you and is the only one who deserves to be king of your heart? Well, we have that sign in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. Through the cross, God has exposed the condition of the human heart but also dealt with it and dealt with the problem of sin and death. I mean, what more do we want the Messiah to do for us? I want to finish with my third point, uh, which is an encouragement, I hope, and it's from these last few verses in verses 46 to 50. I'll be honest, as I was reading the different books about this section, I don't think I could get an agreement between people what was going on in this little passage, but everybody seemed to agree on one thing, and that is saying that, Jesus is saying that those who do his Father's will, those who recognize Jesus as their Savior, are committed to following him, who are wholeheartedly submitting to his rule in their lives and making him king of their hearts, those people are Jesus' true relatives. They're his family. That's what it says in verses uh, 48 and 49. 49 pointing to his disciples he said here are my mother and my brothers for whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother as christians we have such close fellowship with jesus that we're his family john calvin said everyone who's regenerated by the spirit and gives himself up entirely to god for true justification is thus admitted to the closest union with christ and becomes one with him When um, Jose Mourinho, any Spurs fans? I know there's one, where is he? Or maybe he's upstairs. When Jose Mourinho stood in front of the Spurs players at the beginning of this week, (coughs) apparently for the first time he said to them, uh, I want you to put your faith in me and follow me, and I promise you that we'll win trophies together. Now the call from today's passage is to reject the superficiality, the arms lengthedness of religion, but wholeheartedly follow Jesus, who's the special one. And we have to make the idols of our hearts homeless because they've been replaced by love of Christ. And the promise that Jesus makes to us is that he'll look at us and call us his brothers and sisters, that we will be part of his family and give us a renewed heart. It's a much better promise than winning trophies with Spurs, even if you're a Spurs fan, because Jesus looks at us and calls us his brothers and sisters.